These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning again, everyone. That's a meaty scripture, isn't it? We could probably just read that two more times and call it quits for today. But we won't. We'll get into it a little bit. If you were here last week, um, well, actually, who can remember the title slide? What was on the title slide last week's talk? Remember, obey, don't forget. Well done. Remember, obey, and don't forget. So we're in a series um, which we've connected to the daily Bible readings Uh, during the season called The Counting of the Omer, which is basically from Resurrection Sunday to Pentecost Sunday, or First Fruits to Shavuot, okay? So um, this is a a season of 50 days. And before that, prior to that, uh, if if you come here regularly, you know that Wayne and I returned from holidays very, very much impacted by the Lord speaking to us about repentance and the need for repentance And going back to 2020 when he said, I want you to stand at the crossroads and ask for the good way, the ancient pathways. It was sort of like, it was a little bit mysterious in a way, but it was just when COVID had hit the world and all kinds of things were just being tipped upside down and have continued to be over the last two years. But the sense that we had was that the Lord was saying, you haven't heard what I actually meant. The hinge of History has pivoted open. There's a new season. Things are happening in the earth that you need to take note of, and there's a time of preparation that you need to engage with. You know, whenever the Lord's done anything in history, um, he's always prepared his people, right? That's what he does. He tells the prophets. That's what it says in Amos. He tells the prophets. The prophets of Israel always warned Israel. When, when seasons of change and seasons um, preceding difficult seasons were coming. So we have the very first season of counting of the Omer. We looked at that last year, and that was the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. That was that counting of the Omer, the very first one. And they were being prepared. They were being taken out of Egypt, yes, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but they didn't know who they were, and they didn't know the God who had delivered them. 
And those six weeks, if you, if, if you've been following along, so many things happened and it was God revealing himself to his people and preparing them for the Mount Sinai encounter where God came down on that mountain with glory and fire and smoke and the sound of trumpets. And he basically said, I am your God, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Will you covenant yourselves to me? For I have covenanted myself to you. Now, when you've been a slave your whole life and someone says that, Someone brings you out with miracles and, and this, this God who they don't know has revealed himself in great signs and wonders. And then he says that. You can understand and appreciate why perhaps they struggled with their identity, but they struggled for 40 years and that generation never made it to the promised land because actually they were hard-hearted. And God knew that after the first two years, didn't he? He was, yeah, he actually, he knew it after the first six weeks. Well, he knew it all along. But you understand what I'm saying? And yet he was merciful because Moses interceded. So we have here, we've just started into the, the letters, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And here again, here again is there's a preparation that God is bringing these seven churches in Asia Minor. These were seven literal churches. The Apostle John had been overseeing these churches, actually, in the Roman province of, of Asia or Asia Minor. And so he was acquainted with these seven churches. Now, John himself, at the time that he received this revelation, was on the Isle of Patmos because he had been preaching the word of God. And Domitian came to power in AD 80, and he was a bit of a crazy man, and he did not like anyone declaring that there was any other god except the Roman emperor. And Domitian, well, there's lots of stories about how he tried to kill John, and when he was unsuccessful, he exiled him to Patmos. And this is where John gets this revelation. It's interesting that each of these letters highlights something about the character of Jesus. Each of them brings an encouragement, if there is one, to the churches. And each of them, apart from the, the letter to the, the church in Smyrna, each one of them brings a rebuke. And each one of them talks or encourages in some way that little church to overcome, to rise up, to have faith in God, and to be overcomers, to endure patiently to the end. So at this time, when these words are coming from Jesus to each of these literal seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, there's a very specific message for each of them because they have either already started to go through a time of great trial or they're about to. And Jesus speaks directly to them to strengthen them. However, he finishes each letter with that phrase. What is it? Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Which is a very clear pointer that this is not just a message for those churches back in, you know, AD 95 or whatever it was, when John wrote them on the Isle of Patmos, but that actually anyone who hears looks into this takes note 
and stirs themselves up in these areas, right? Any church that takes this to heart, there's going to be a blessing. There's going to be a blessing, a strengthening. There's going to be a fervency that the Lord will give. Because the only way that the bride of Christ is going to to overcome and endure the kind of persecution, the the kinds of trials, is if we are fervently in love with Jesus. That is the message of these letters. That's what Jesus is getting at in every single area. So he goes right to the point. This is your area of weakness. This is where you're compromised. This is what's going to bring you undone. So correct it now. And we're going to look specifically, just quickly, at the the first church, Ephesus, the church that left their first love. This is the most significant church. Ephesus was the biggest um, city. It was a leading seaport, and it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Paul had evangelized it and used it as a base of his operations for at least three years. Now, he had stopped there a couple of times, and on his third visit, he stayed for three years. Um, just quickly turn to Acts chapter 19, because this, this records a lot. Um, we learn a lot in Acts chapter 19 about the church of Ephesus, which is going to help us to understand some comments that Jesus makes to this church. First of all, a number of church, a number of letters had been written that we have record of in the New Testament. A number of letters had been written to the church at Ephesus. Obviously, what's the one you're all thinking of? Ephesians. <laughs> Brilliant. Ephesians was penned by Paul to this church. What else? Which other ones do you think might have been? Well, the book of Revelation, okay, they got that first, right? Yes, yes, First Timothy, First and Second Timothy, actually, the letters to Timothy. While Timothy was laboring in Ephesus, that's right. And most probably John's Gospel and John's Epistles, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, okay, because John was... In Ephesus, when we visited Ephesus, they actually take you to the tomb of Mary. And remember that John was told to look after Mary. When Jesus is on the cross, take, take, take care of my mother. And Mary, would, and Mary and John. So when you hear John, you hear Mary's with him, <laughs> okay, in Ephesus. And they can, you can go and see the house where she lived, apparently. I'm not sure if it, it actually really was her house. But anyway, she was definitely in that area. And there's a place where she was buried and all this sort of stuff. Um, Definitely, John died in Ephesus after he came back, after he was, after he was able to leave the Isle of Pat- Patmos. I say, okay, so definitely the first recipient, uh, Ephesians, first and second Timothy and Revelation, and possibly four more. John's Gospel, I would say definitely four more, actually, um, and first, second, and third John. Paul also wrote first Corinthians from Ephesus. Okay, so it was a very important city in the early history of the church. Um, and John himself um, probably went there around AD 66. Don't know if you remember what was happening then, but this is leading up to the, you know, AD 70 destruction of the temple, 
in Jerusalem, that whole thing, this riot that happens in Jerusalem. John most likely left Jerusalem at that point. He was actually on the um, the council, uh, the council of church leaders in Jerusalem at that time. He would have fled again, taking Mary with him. They went to Ephesus at that point, um, and that's and from there he supervised the spread of the gospel throughout Asia Minor. This letter is really important. Acts 19, I asked you to turn to that. This is Paul's third stop in Ephesus, and he stays for three years. Now, if you read this chapter, many of these events will be very familiar to you. But sometimes we miss the significance of some of what's happening here in chapter 19, because it's extraordinary. Um, My Bible just says, Paul in Ephesus, chapter 19 He found some disciples there, probably around 12, because it says he baptized 12 of them. And they they had been visited by other followers of Jesus, but they'd only received, um, well, actually followers of disciples of John, but they'd only received John's baptism. And Paul says, well, you you need to be baptized into Jesus. So he baptized them, lays hands on them, they prophesy and speak in tongues. Paul taught in the synagogue, well, I should say (laughs) he debated in the synagogue for about three months. But the opposition from the Jews was so strong, he, he, he left that idea, took the disciples with him, and they had daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, so this went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And God did extraordinary miracles, verse 11, through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. This is going on in that short time that Paul is in Ephesus. Extraordinary miracles. The seven sons of Sceva. You remember that story, right? People start trying to cast demons out of other people and uh, in the name of, you know, Paul or Jesus or whatever. And one, you know, this particular demon um, lets rip and just turns around and says, Jesus, I know Paul, I know, but who are you um, to this Jewish chief priest? And, and he gave them all such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. We pray again and again that the word of the Lord would be glorified in our city, right? would run swiftly and be glorified by all or be held in high honor by all. Now, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Can you imagine that happening in our city? When they calculated the value of the scrolls, get this, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, my, my note here says a drachma was a silver coin worth about a day's wages. Now, they worked hard, harder than us, but we work about 240 days a year, which accounts to 208 years of wages. That's about 40 people. If 40 people stood up here who work full-time for 50 years... That's the value of these scrolls that were brought out and burnt. Isn't that incredible? See, we just read this and go, oh, yeah. This is massive. This is Ephesus. This is the city that has left their first love. They've witnessed it all. They didn't witness the death of Jesus, but they've had extraordinary miracles. They've had tremendous 
um, repentance, the fear of the Lord coming on them. Later, the riot in Ephesus, verse 23, there's a silversmith. He's really worried. Why is he worried? Because people are turning to Christ and they don't want their idols made anymore. He's going to lose a heck of a lot of money. Extremely worried. So he stirs up this right. I'm just giving you the short story here. He's worried. Our trade will lose its good name and the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. This is what's going on in Ephesus. Huge riot. Anyway, the Lord intervenes and the city clerk quietens the crowd and he ends up dispersing them. But there was uproar. Massive uproar because the word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ had as Lord, yes, not Caesar. Remember, this is Caesar's domain. This is a Roman province. The good news of Jesus Christ as Lord has flooded not just Ephesus, that's, that's the major city, but all these other cities. And Ephesus would have probably had, um, I don't know, maybe even a few hundred of these little small groups that would meet. When Wayne and I visited Ephesus, I remember standing in front of what was left of their, their library, this extraordinary library, which actually was built probably 15 years after this letter, Jesus to the, to the church in Ephesus. But it's, ex, it's extraordinary. It's right in the heart of the city, and it's, it's quite palatial <laughs> looking. It just... It, that together with the story in Acts 19 and these scrolls, and you can see why Ephesus was the center, not, not just a, a trade center, not just the center of political influence. It was also a center for intellectual thought. Philosophers would come. Books, these books, these valuable books and this huge library shows the intellectual pride, I suppose you could say, of this particular city. Is that something that influenced them? Going back to Jesus' words to this church, he encourages them. He says, I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Do you hear that studiousness? You have persevered and have endured harsh hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. When you think how the church was established at Ephesus, it kind of reminds me of the Acts 2 church where they would have devoted themselves they would have gathered regularly and devoted themselves to the word of God and the teaching of the word and, and to loving one another because, you see, they had been in the midst of a great revival. They had seen the power of God and God blessed that work. It's amazing to think that a church lasted there because this is 40 years. This is 40 years. You know, Paul was there from probably A.D. 52 to 54 and this is now... Island of Patmos, probably 94, 40 years. But that should tell us something as well. That unless our hearts are being renewed regularly in love for Jesus, 
will the generation after you be fervent in love? If you who hold the torch, those of you who are holding that baton and you're, pl- you're passing it to the next generation, are you fervent? Or have you left your first love and you've taken things for granted? You've taken your faith for granted. You've taken the blessings. Remember Deuteronomy 8. And when I've blessed you, don't forget. This is a warning to all of us. Because unless our hearts are on fire for Jesus, unless we're grounded in the word of God and feeding ourselves with the word of God, Jesus warns us all kinds of trials, all kinds of false prophets, and Ephesus was plagued. Okay, John was constantly, and Timothy, and Paul, there were, there were false teachers that, that rose up through that whole 40 years. And there was, there was coming back to this all the time. And perhaps that was because they were a center of philosophers. I don't know. But the word of God was always being challenged by the false teachers. How will you know what is truth and what is deception unless... You are applying yourself now. Unless when you read the word of God, you're standing before him and not just reading it, but you're standing in his presence and you're speaking it back out loud to him. And you are saying, Lord, grip me with your heart on this. I don't understand this, but Holy Spirit, you're my teacher. I want you to lay hold of me with truth that I will stand in the hour of trial. And in the hour of persecution, that when I see Jesus face to face, he won't say, you left your first love. And Jesus warns them, you are on the path. You're well on the way. I'm going to remove your lampstand unless you repent. That means Ephesus You will not have a witness anymore in this city unless you repent. Unless you remember. This is what he says. Which verse is that? Consider how far you've fallen. Remember what it was like all those years. Remember. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember. Repent. And do the things you did at first. Whoever has ears, let them hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And just before I hand over to Wayne, just some questions to reflect on. Have you left your first love? You see, my heart starts to grow cold when what is familiar is taken for granted and neglected. What's on your mind when you wake up in the morning? The things of the day, checking social media, sending texts, reading your emails, racing to get showered and dressed, ready to go to work or whatever. Do you delight in the fact that you're a student and you can sleep into the very last minute? Or did you set your alarm so that the first portion of your day could be spent reading your Bible and praying? Have you left your first love? Do you remember a time when Jesus only had to ask and you would obey? 
Giving your money away was a joy, not an obligation. Stopping to pray for someone was a privilege, not something you didn't have time for. Prayer on Wednesday evenings was an encounter, not a duty. You've left your first love. Are your days taken up with more important things? What consumes your mind more than anything else? Has your daily time with God become a rushed 10-minute devotional or not even that? You've left your first love. Do you prefer doing things for Jesus than spending time with Jesus? Perhaps you've left your first love. When you are asked to serve, do you make it about serving Jesus? Serving. Not necessarily something that fits you exactly right. Serving. That's what serving is. Do you make it about serving Jesus or do you make it about serving yourself? If it requires too much, do you decline? You've left your first love. Do you find yourself thinking that God owes you something and wondering why he's not giving you the things that you really need? Have you forgotten how much you owe Jesus Christ? You've left your first love. The disturbing question that God asks Jeremiah to put to the people is, what wrong did you find in me that you went far from me? Charles Spurgeon said, it is the loss of your first love that makes you seek the comfort of your bodies instead of the prosperity of your souls. Remember. Remember those early days, weeks and months. Remember that season when your journal is full of letters to Jesus. Repent. Turn around. Turn away from and humble yourself under God's discipline because he disciplines the ones he loves. And return. Do the things you did at first, relying on God's grace every day. Return to your first love. I continue in this same, same focus and talking about how do we, where do we go with that? Julie's posed a lot of really great questions for us all to consider. And for some people, it, it might not have been a love that was right at the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. It could have been at some other point. But there may have been a time when your heart was just fully alive in the love of God. And perhaps it's not anymore. Or maybe it never has. And you think, well, what am I missing out on? You're doing dutiful Christian things. And I want to focus our thoughts uh, for the rest of our time, uh, which will lead us into the Feast of Jesus, around Christ and the cross in specific, specifically. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. I want to uh, 
listen to some of this together. Luke chapter 23, as we just remember and reflect on Christ. Because I believe there is a cure for cold love. And the cross is at the center of it. Christ is at the center of it. Luke chapter 23, beginning to read at verse 8. And so this is, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been in front of Pilate. Pilate now sent him off to Herod because he's from Herod's jurisdiction. And verse 8 tells us that Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he'd been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. And he asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. And finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Verse 13, then Pilate called together the leading priests and the other religious leaders along with the people. And he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I'll release him. And a mighty roar rose from the crowd and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. And Luke tells us that Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government. He's in prison for murder. And Pilate argues with them and because, they wanted to, because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I'll have him flogged. And then I'll release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. And as they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished jump down to verse 32 we're now at the crucifixion two others both criminals were led out to be executed with him when they came to a place called the skull they nailed him to the cross and the criminals were also crucified one on his right and one on his left Jesus said father forgive them They don't really know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too. By offering him a drink of sour wine, they called out to him. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. 
So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. The cure for cold love is to gaze on the cross of Christ. When we gaze on something for a long period of time, for an extended period of time, we we begin to see and we begin to appreciate uh, features that we didn't notice at first. This is true of a sunset. It's true of a great uh, work of art. And it's true of a person. It's true of Christ crucified. I find that the, um, some, of the, some of the messages by uh, Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson are, are helpful. And I, and I say it uh, with, with a caveat that Jordan's not a theologian, but he's a diligent student and reader of the Bible. And you can tell that when you listen to him. He's really tried to understand the Bible. But he doesn't come at it from a, a typically Christian framework. He comes at it from a psychologist, psychologist framework. And so I filter what he speaks, but I find that he sometimes shows me things that I didn't see in the text because of the lens that I read it through, having grown up in the church, whereas he reads it from a different, through a different lens. And one of the things that he says about the passion of the Christ story is that it's, it's an archetypal story. It is the archetypal story. Now to look up what archetypal means. It means it's the defining story of humanity. Peterson says that you cannot write a more tragic story. It's impossible because... Peterson says it's impossible to write a more tragic story because it's the aggregation. I had to look up that word as well, which means the accumulation of everything that people are afraid of. So this story of the Passion of the Christ is the accumulation of everything that everyone else is afraid of. And so by staring at it, we actually can get free of our fears. This is a really interesting thought. I want to just unfold this a little bit. Just listen to this, how this plays out. Let me just dot point it for you. So first, let's start with the fact of crucifixion. There isn't actually a more painful way to die. And that's why the Romans actually took what had been div- what um, previous... Uh, uh, dynasty had done and I can't think it was the Babylonians originally invented crucifixion but it was actually the Romans that developed it to become the greatest most painful way for a human being to die as a way of punishing and intimidating people from uprising against them it's what all dictators and tyrannical powers do come up with the most painful way to die it'll put people off speaking against you Crucifixion is a slow, agonizing death by suffocation, dehydration and exposure. It is extraordinarily painful. Plus, Jesus knew that it was coming. So think about that for a minute, because Jesus spoke many times that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be crucified and die. 
Think about what that, that does to you as a human. When, when you think about something of great, some great painful experience is waiting for you a short distance away. What does that do internally? And Jesus was resolute that this is where he was going. Plus, one of his inner circle betrays him into it. You ever had one of your close friends betray you? You'll know what that feels like. Plus, his own people turn against him. He's a Jew. Jews, turn, the Jewish people, turn against him. One of his key leaders, one of the people that he's invested so much into over three years, publicly denies that he even knows him. Plus, the government is led by a tyrant who doubts truth. Remember Pilate's interrogation of Jesus and the, the what is truth? Jesus is a victim of the Roman Empire. Plus, he's completely innocent. Completely innocent. And everybody knows it. Plus, they choose a criminal to be released instead of Jesus, even though they know that that man is a criminal and a murderer, and they know that Jesus is innocent. Plus, Jesus is young. Plus, he's never done anything wrong. And all he's ever done is heal people and help people. And that's why Peterson says, you cannot write a more tragic story. And the truth is that the cross is a confrontation. It's a confrontation between God and humanity where you, you and I, we weren't physically present on that day that Jesus was crucified. But this is the reality that the cross is this confrontation in the deepest and darkest terms between God and humans. So that means me and that means you. The cross is the ultimate expression of reality because through the cross, all humanity is revealed for what we really are, for who we really are, that we desire the world to be the way we want it to be. And we will kill God if it means getting it. And we ought not to be deluded, any of us in this room and any watching the stream, that we would, we would kill to make the world the way that we want it to be for ourselves, to get what we want. Think of Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says that murder begins in your thoughts. Lust begins in your thoughts. David Slyker, in his very insightful book, The Nation's Rage, says it this way. He says, underneath the surface, within every fallen human being who is separated from God, lies a storm of rage against God. Think about this. Jesus is absolute truth. And you think of when absolute truth comes into a world controlled by lies, it must be eliminated. Isn't it? Because we prefer lies to truth. We prefer darkness to light. This is actually what John said in, in the opening of his, his gospel. John 1, 17. God's unfailing love and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's unfailing love and truth comes through Jesus Christ. That is something worth thinking about, a phrase. And then in, in chapter 3, verse 19... 
he says it this way, he said, God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil and they didn't want to come into the light to be exposed. Isn't that the truth about all of us? We do not want to be seen in the light. We want to keep things secret. So into a world where lies and darkness rule, truth will always be crucified. That's what we will do. Because lies and darkness surround us and are within us. So, the cure for cold love is this. It's simple. It's not hard to do. But you just need to do it. And if what Julie was sharing this morning about lost your first love, all those things, here's his how that can be regained. Here's how love for Christ can be regained, be rekindled in all of our hearts, is this. We habitually stare at the cross. Habitually stare at the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ keeps us moving towards truth and the cross of Christ corrects us as we wander away. It reveals the darkness of our hearts and it reveals God's unfailing love and truth. The cross reminds us that the God of all creation willingly and passively submitted himself to our murder and our madness. Remember the descriptions of Jesus, that he, was, he carried his cross. He willingly went this way. He, he, was like a, he said he was like a sheep, that was a lamb that was led to slaughter. And he did it to redeem us. He did it to reconcile us to himself. And the cross demonstrates the limitless, limitlessness of God's self-giving and self-emptying love. It's that, so staring at the cross and contemplating Christ and contemplating what he did and what that brought for us cures cold love. And if your love is cold this morning, this is my plea that you will take time to stare at the cross. You don't just go, oh, I got, I got it. Yeah, I got the, I know. Yep, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus, you know, I got it. But go, no, no, I got, to, I got to sit here. I got to sit and gaze on him. Paul said to the Corinthians, I didn't want to know anything amongst you except Christ crucified. Just think about what, why? What? Hey, that's, that's what you wanted? That's what you wanted to focus on? Christ crucified? It's because of these things. Because it's this self-giving, self-emptying love of God. It's his boundless mercy, generous grace to all humanity. And when, we, when it's this understanding that, that if I had been there on that day, I probably would have been one standing in the mob saying, crucify him. Because the truth about me is that I love lies rather than truth I don't like and I don't like to be exposed I don't like to be seen in the light and then after the cross we see the tomb where Jesus body was laid his dead body we see a Roman seal and we see soldiers sent to guard it and so it's the end and everyone breathes a sigh of relief we've killed God we've we've got control of the planet it's all happy days from now on that's how we some people want the story to end We've extinguished the truth. We've extinguished the light. And yet, three days later, 
A new sunrise turns the darkness into light and love and truth were not conquered or extinguished. And in fact, a new beginning has begun for all the world. And it's an opportunity for people now to love the light and the truth of Christ now and for all eternity. After the terrors of the night, we all love the light. But sometimes we have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death to appreciate life, love and truth. How can a person return to their first love? How does someone keep their love from growing cold? And how does anyone ever come to love Christ in the first place? And it's the same answer for each of those questions. It's an invitation for them to stare at the cross. To stare at the cross. Not glance at it. Not just walk past it. But to stare at it and to contemplate it. To sit and gaze on it. Read the scriptures slowly read the scriptures slowly that speak of the crucifixion of christ put yourself in the story wonder what it was like for jesus to feel the things that he felt all those things that i listed at the beginning the cross is where our love for christ gets awakened it gets rekindled it gets renewed And now with these simple elements, we're just going to take a little moment to do that. And just invite you to take out little elements that you received. Just take out the wafer first. And we're just going to not be in a hurry. Just take that wafer, have a good look at it, and say, thank you, Jesus, for your body broken for me. Before we drink the juice, I want to ask ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart to see Christ crucified. for that reality that the Son of God gave himself for you and be burned deeply into the core of your being. I want to invite all the parents to pray it for their children. Pray that just for yourself, but pray that this become a living reality for your children. Christ Prepare your cup to drink the juice. 
And remember that this juice represents the blood of the Son of God. cleanses from all sin but it cost him his life if you haven't if you 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 know the condition of your heart so just if you've been treating it lightly just tell God you're sorry for that reality that you've not valued not valued him the price that he paid for you reconcile us to yourself Holy Spirit I pray that you we will our love will be rekindled renewed fanned into flame but this wonderful reality of Christ crucified that we will be a people marked by this because we're willingly stare longingly at the cross and contemplate what you did the price that was paid for us this is my prayer in your name